It is not exactly like the racial discrimination of our forefathers. It's in what you see in media, the microaggressions that you see when you walk through a store, the harassment that you experience when you get pulled over by a police officer. Just working in the youth legal system, you see the pervasive impact of racism and how it really impacts and shapes the lives of these kids really every single day. Welcome to Hope Starts With Us, a podcast by NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. I'm your host, Daniel H. Gillison Jr., NAMI's CEO. We started this podcast because we believe that hope starts with us. Hope starts with us talking about mental health. Hope starts with us making information accessible. Hope starts with us providing resources and practical advice. Hope starts with us sharing our stories. Hope starts with us breaking the stigma. If you or a loved one is struggling with a mental health condition and have been looking for hope, we made this podcast for you. Hope starts with all of us. Hope is a collective. We hope that each episode with each conversation brings you into that collective to know you are not alone. For the first week of Black History Month, I am very excited to welcome two incredible doctors, researchers, and educators to our podcast, Dr. Makai Owen and Dr. Roy Wade Jr., to talk about racism and adverse childhood experiences. Dr. Makai Owen is a principal investigator of the UCLA UCSF ACES Aware Family Resilience Network, UCAN, the organization that implements the ACES Aware Initiative on behalf of the California Department of Healthcare Services and the Office of the California Surgeon General. He is a practicing pediatrician who works with system-impacted youth in the Sacramento County juvenile justice system and has done extensive work within the health equity space. Dr. Owen earned an MD at UCSF and completed his pediatric residency at UC Davis and a fellowship in community and societal pediatrics at the University of Florida College of Medicine, Jacksonville. He has also completed the Posen Commonwealth Fund Fellowship in Health Equity Leadership at Yale University. Now, Dr. Roy Wade Jr. is an assistant professor of pediatrics and a general pediatrician at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, Cobbs Creek Primary Care. His research focuses on the intersection between childhood poverty, adversity, and well-being. Dr. Wade has a PhD in microbiology from the Georgia Institute of Technology. He received his medical degree from Dartmouth Medical School, completing his pediatric residency at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville, Virginia. After residency, Dr. Wade completed a Commonwealth Fund Harvard Minority Health Policy Fellowship at the Harvard School of Medicine and Harvard School of Public Health, earning an MPH in Health Policy and Management. Dr. Owen, Dr. Wade, thank you so much for taking time to be with us today on our podcast. We're really grateful and uh, we really do appreciate it. Um, so I want to start our conversation by clarifying some terminology for our listeners. When we talk about and hear adverse childhood experiences, also known as ACEs, what is meant? What do we mean? What are ACEs and where did the term come from? Uh, Dr. Wade, would you would you start for us? Certainly. First off, I want to thank you for uh, having me on this podcast today. It's an honor and it's great to reconnect with my good friend, Dr. Owen. Um, 
So adverse childhood experiences, the term was developed from a study that was conducted in the mid to late 1990s by researchers from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and Kaiser Permanente out in San Diego. The researchers essentially asked about 17,000 of their policyholders this question. Was it prior to age 18, were you abused either physically, sexually, or emotionally? Did you experience some form of neglect, either emotional or physical? Or did you have or experience various household stressors growing up? Did you have a care provider who had substance abuse problems? A care provider who had mental illness? Was there domestic violence in your home? Were your parents divorced or separated? Or did you have a care provider who was incarcerated? So in essence, 10 experiences that occurred to you prior to age 18. And the elegant part about this study is that they didn't look at the severity of these experiences, but they largely focused on whether they just happened or not. They didn't ask about frequency or, or, or even impact on you. And what they showed is, is that there was an association between the number of these experiences that you reported and whether or not you had certain physical health conditions as an adult, starting with things like health risk behaviors, so things like smoking, drinking, and high-risk sexual behavior. Mm-hmm. And then moving on to mental health conditions like PTSD, depression, and suicidality, but also physical health conditions. So the higher your, what they called ACE score, the more likely you were to report having cardiovascular disease, so heart attacks and strokes, to have cancers, emphysema, diabetes, and even early mortality. One of the published studies from that study associated reporting six or more of these experiences with a reduction in your life expectancy by as much as 20 years of age. Now, one of the interesting things that we did in Philadelphia was to replicate that study, expanding what was considered to be an ACE to things that occurred outside the home. Because many of those experiences that I initially described are largely experiences that occur within the household or within families. And we included experiences like racial discrimination, uh, experiencing violence or living in unsafe neighborhoods. And we found those same associations in terms of increased risk for physical or emotional health conditions. Wow. Um, As you mentioned, the correlation between physical health and the reduction in the lifespan by 20 years, that's profound. I know there's more that we're going to talk about, but thank you for getting us teed up with that. Now I want to turn to Dr. Makai Owen. Dr. Owen, you help lead an organization called UCAN, which is running the ACES Aware Initiative in California. Would you tell our audience more about that? What is UCAN and ACES Aware, and how can other states emulate what you're doing there in California? Yeah, no problem. So I'm a co-principal investigator for UCAN, along with Dr. Shannon Tyne and Dr. Eddie Mochtinger. And as you mentioned earlier, UCAN implements California's ACES Aware initiative on behalf of the California Department of Healthcare Services and the California Office of the Surgeon General. ACES Aware was launched in December 2019 as part of Governor Gavin Newsom's California for All initiative. And at the same time in 2019, Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris was appointed as California's first ever Surgeon General to oversee the implementation of the ACES Aware initiative. She was followed by our current Surgeon General, Dr. Diana Ramos, and both have been incredible champions in advancing California's coordinated effort to prevent, identify, and respond to ACEs and toxic stress through the ACEs Aware Initiative. 
So the ACEs Aware Initiative is a first in the nation effort to promote early detection and intervention to mitigate the health and societal impacts of ACEs and toxic stress. So the ACEs Aware Initiative does this in a number of ways. So first, we do a lot of work to raise awareness on the impact of ACEs and toxic stress on health and well-being outcomes across different populations. And we do this by training medical providers, clinical teams, community-based organizations all over the state on the impact of ACEs and toxic stress. And thus far, we've trained over 36,000 individuals across California. In addition to that, we support practice change efforts. So we work with clinical teams and community-based organizations to help them implement changes in their practice and implement trauma-informed care, ACE screening and response activities to promote early identification and response to ACEs and toxic stress. And then we invest in trauma-informed networks of care across California. Thus far, we've invested over $65 million in communities across the state to help develop and and advance trauma-informed networks of care, which are cross-sector, interdisciplinary networks of care that help to provide communities with the buffering resources needed uh, to prevent and respond to ACEs and toxic stress. And I think in terms of other states replicating the efforts in California, one of the really important things to note is that California has recognized to prevent and to respond to ACEs and toxic stress at scale across the state is really going to take a a cross-sector approach. It can't be achieved just in the medical sector. It can't be achieved just in the social services sector. Uh, It can't be achieved in just the educational sector. Really, what we need to do is have these sectors work together and understand the impact of childhood adversity on various health and well-being outcomes and to work together to make sure that individuals across the state, across the country, really have access to the resources and services needed to reach their full potential. You know, thank you very much. Uh, what you just demonstrated in terms of uh, what you shared is, as I was listening, the trauma-informed network of care, The it must be a cross-sector approach, and, and also the first ever. It made me think about leadership. At the beginning and the end of this, this is absolutely also the first state surgeon general. I mean, it sounds like it's about leadership, and that's where it begins, and then that's what's threaded through how this really has wrapped around in the 65, what did you say, 65 million or 65? What was was the, what was the number that you shared, Dr. Owen? Right. Since the launch of the initiative, we've invested over $65 million in communities across California. Yeah, that's remarkable. So um, thank you for sharing that. From my understanding, racism wasn't included in the list for adverse childhood experiences originally conducted by the CDC. When did we start thinking about racism as an adverse childhood experience? And why is it so important for us to acknowledge racism in the conversation about ACEs? Why don't we go to uh, Dr. Roy first, and then we'll come to Dr. Owen. Thank you for that question. I think it's a much needed question because I think currently there's some argument about whether or not racism represents an adverse childhood experience. And um, I'm in the camp that believes it's one of the worst adverse childhood experiences because of its pervasive effect on kids right now. Prior to our study in Philadelphia, there was an abundance of research highlighting the negative impact of of racial discrimination on the well-being of kids across the life course. Things like associations with experiencing racism or reporting racism and increased risk for things like diabetes and increased risk for cardiovascular problems and certainly the mental health conditions that come along with it. I think after some of the research that we had conducted in Philadelphia, uh, we showed that incorporating that 
racism measure into an adverse childhood experience score was strongly associated with poor life course health outcomes. And I think there has been abundance of research since then supporting that. One of the reasons I, I feel it's so important is because of the way racism plays out for so many children now. It is not exactly like the racial discrimination of our forefathers and that they had direct experiences of trauma from other people, right, that threatened their overall well-being. It's pervasive. It's in what you see in media. It's the microaggressions that you see when you walk through a store. It's the harassment that you experience when you get pulled over by a police officer. It's watching the news and seeing report after report of persons of color when issues of crime and violence come up. And getting this sense that there's something wrong with you just because of your color, just because of your racial and ethnic background, and that there's no sense that you can overcome it at all. And that is indeed supported by much of the research, that young people can even sense differences in race as early as age three, and they start to develop negative uh, connotations or negative perceptions of certain races by age five, by age six. Mm. And that can begin to set in and and impact their self-esteem and most importantly, their sense of self-efficacy, their sense that they can do and that they can overcome. And when you begin to run into those obstacles over and over and over again as a child of color, you get the sense that I can't escape. And so it can lead to frustration, anger, hostility, and even a desire to give up. And so one of the reasons why I think it's so important to consider uh, racial discrimination in all of our work around adverse childhood experiences is that it is so common for kids, it's so pervasive for kids, and it is so incredibly toxic for kids in a way that many of these experiences aren't. Yeah, thank you for that. I want to now go to Dr. Owen and ask the same question. Why is it so important for us to acknowledge racism in the conversation about ACEs? And when did we start thinking about it? I'd really love to get your insight. Thank you, Dr. Owen. And thank you, Dr. Wade. Right. Well, I think in taking a step back before I answer that question, I want want to talk about California's approach to identifying and responding to ACEs and toxic stress. Mm. So here in California, we recommend screening for ACEs as a way to identify risk of toxic stress. And toxic stress can be defined as the prolonged activation of the stress response system that can disrupt the development of brain architecture and other organ systems and increase the risk for stress-related disease and cognitive impairment into adulthood. And we know a lot of research shows that um, ACEs uh, in the absence or in the absence of sufficient protective factors can lead to activation of the Mm -hmm. toxic stress physiology and lead to a host of poor outcomes. And there's a lot of population level data that shows that there is a dose response relationship between exposure to ACEs and a host of poor health and well-being outcomes, and that this is mediated through the toxic stress pathway. And I think that when we talk about ACEs or childhood adverse childhood experiences, it's important to kind of distinguish if we're talking about the ACEs in the sense of, as uh, Dr. Wade mentioned earlier, these 10 categories of childhood adversities in these three specific domains which the population level evidence shows is, is related to these poor outcomes in, in a dose response relationship, or if we're talking more generally about various forms of adversity um, that children can experience throughout the life course that go well beyond the original categories that were studied in Kaiser. 
And I think that's an, a really important and subtle point to point out because, again, as Dr. Wade said, the impact of racism and discrimination on health and well-being is pervasive. Um, and there's some evidence to suggest that it works through the toxic stress pathway in a similar way to how we think about uh, the 10 original ACEs. But it impacts health and well-being in a number of other ways, You know it, how it shapes one's community, how it leads to social deprivation, how it can lead to violence, and a number of other factors. So I think whenever we're talking about racism and discrimination in the context of, of adverse childhood experiences, it's really important to think about you know the distinction or the relationship between the way that racism may act on the toxic stress pathway, but also the myriad of other ways in which racism can impact health and well-being across the life course. And again, in California, when we think about our response to toxic stress, we have clinical recommendations as well as community-based recommendations that we put forth. But when thinking about racism and discrimination, especially, those recommendations are going to be necessary, but they're not going to be sufficient uh, to address the really pervasive impact of racism and discrimination. Addressing that is going to take a lot more and a lot more uh, coordinated effort and approach across many, many different sectors. Yeah, thank you for that. You mentioned the toxic stress pathway. Love to learn more about and have our audience know more about what is, what is meant by the toxic stress pathway uh, as we move through our conversation. So is there anything you could share with us, Dr. Owen, on the toxic stress pathway? I think that's an interesting element to share. Sure, absolutely. So again, I'll say toxic stress can be the prolonged activation of the stress response system that can disrupt the development of brain architecture and other organ systems and increase the risk of stress-related disease and cognitive impairment well into adult years. But another way to think about that is when there is an imbalance between specific adversities in childhood and protective factors or other buffering resources in childhood, it can lead to a disordered stress response system, basically. And that disordered stress response system can lead to disordered development of our neurological systems, of our endocrine system, our immunologic system, uh, our metabolism, and our genetic regulatory pathways. And that can really shape health and well-being across the life course. And it's through this physiology that adverse childhood experiences or these negative experiences in childhood can really get under our skin and then lead to a number of poor health and well-being and social outcomes, not only in childhood, but really throughout the life course. You know, Dr. Owen, I really appreciate you sharing that and, and what you shared in terms of the medical. It, what I really wanted the audience to hear is some of the, the medical elements of this, because most often when we talk about racism and we talk about adverse childhood experiences, some of our community uh, will look at that as social versus medical. And what you're tying it to is, no, it is medical. And I really do appreciate you sharing that. The other thing is that as we started this podcast, we actually labeled it Hope Starts With Us. And you talked about protective factors. You mentioned that. And what we recognize is in some of our young people that they become hopeless because those protective factors aren't there. And it gets back to adverse childhood experiences. So really do appreciate what you just shared. Um, I, I want to build on this. And before I do, Dr. Wade, did you want to enter into this at this point? Is there anything you wanted to share? I just wanted to highlight that point, right? That when I have patients who come to see me on a regular basis for their well childcare, one of the ways I always open up the conversation is, 
by giving the floor to the parents and giving the floors to the patient and asking them, is there anything that's on your mind, that's on your heart that we can address today as part of our visit? And oftentimes they're a little bit, they sit a little bit dumbstruck, right? Because they're like, well, we're fine. Like we don't have any medical conditions. And I say, well, anything, like things that are going on in school, things that are going on at home, things that are going on within your community, all these things are relevant. And, and the question often is, is, well, that has nothing to do with our health. And then, you know, the adverse childhood experience study is an example of just that, how your social environment and how understanding the social environment of your families uh, shapes the way you practice. And so it leads us to this point as physicians where not that we're social workers, right? And I'm not trying to say I'm a social worker or a psychiatrist or a psychologist, but the fact that these experiences are shaping whether or not my patients may have asthma, whether or not my patients may have certain medical conditions is important for me to understand then these experiences so that I can help problem solve and to connect them to the resources that already exist within their communities. Right, that can help them to address those social factors and ultimately improve their health outcomes. You know, what you talked about, uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Wade, and what you just, for me, as a, as a parent, and one of those parents that I remember taking my, uh, my two uh, children to the pediatrician, is I never remember a pediatrician slowing down to actually do what you do. And so what it evolved is um, volume, of uh, um, and a reception uh, room full of patients and trying to get to as many. And I feel now with what I know that sometimes my pediatrician, to no fault of their own, may have addressed a symptom and medicated a symptom versus getting to the root cause. And um, I'd love to continue this conversation in, as we go forward because I think... Can, I, can I just follow up on that? I, point I would love it if you were, please. Point. So it highlights that you can and what Dr. Owen and the other investigators are doing. It's been my experience that I, I haven't, maybe I have, but I haven't met a pediatrician that I know of, doesn't know about these issues and care about these issues. But pediatricians and practitioners, medical pr- practitioners, are responding to systems. And so what's required as we think about this adverse childhood experience work is to talk to doctors, to talk to practitioners about how they can change their practice but recognize that they're responding to systems. Systems that say you have to see a patient within 10 to 15 minutes for a well child visit. So I'll bring in a 15-year-old for a well child visit whose father may have passed in the last year, who may have witnessed violence within their community, who may have experienced abuse and never told anyone. Is that a 15-minute visit? It's not. Um, And so what is required as we think about this work, and I think this is what California has tackled well, is how do we adjust our systems to better address the needs of our families and our patients? I'm sorry, I know we were going down the road, but I feel like I had to say that. No apology needed, Dr. Wade. And and I'm going to apologize to you all because I want to keep this conversation going because I don't know if I'll have access to you, but this one time, and I want to make sure our audience, because I I would love to play this over and over and make sure that, you know, uh, folks get access to this and understand what you just shared. A lot of times we think that the practitioners don't want to offer this kind of counsel. And what you're saying is the system is set up where you're kind of managed to do things in a period of time that doesn't allow you to do it. And until we address the systems, even those that want to, 
are bound by a a system. Right. Is is that what I heard? Yeah. So take me for example, yes. and I'm not trying to say I'm some I'm some maverick. I'm not. I'm far from it. Right. But I exist within a system that tells me when you are in clinic, you have this amount of time to see patients, and it is not uncommon for me to go an hour over in between patients. I've even had situations where it's been two hours over. And my colleagues will laugh at me. They'll, you know, and they'll say, Roy's behind again, right? Or Dr. Wade's behind again. I'll even have patients who are upset. Uh, and I am, I, I, am, um, I am forthright when I walk into the room and I'll say, I'm sorry, I know I'm behind, um, but I had a patient who was dealing with a significant issue and we had to sit and we had to manage it. And we had to figure it out. And what my patients know, and they learn quickly, uh, is that when you go to see Dr. Wade, you are going to get the time to, to, to feel heard uh, in a way that you might not have ever been felt heard before with other medical practitioners. And I get flogged for it all the time um, it, with my system. I'm always late uh, or running behind, but I have accepted that this is what needs to happen in order for my patients to get the most out of the healthcare that they're receiving from me. And I'm not advocating necessarily for doctors to do that, but what I am advocating for is practitioners to push back on the system and say, are, are there ways that we can restructure, similar to what they're doing in California, restructure the way we practice? So particularly for the communities that I'm serving, I work out in West Philadelphia, and anybody who's familiar with West Philadelphia, it is a rich and vibrant community, but it is stricken by poverty. And while poverty may not necessarily be an ACE, it creates the conditions upon which ACEs are more likely to occur. And what I mean by that is there's an abundance of research that shows that adverse childhood experiences are more common in economically distressed communities, and they're more common amongst persons of color. Now, what Dr. Wade is not saying is that there's something inherent or innate to people who live in poverty or to persons of color that makes them more likely to abuse their kids. But these are individuals, particularly persons of color, who throughout generation after generation after generation have experienced historical inequity, which has relegated large sections of their communities and of their race and ethnicity to, to economic distress, intergenerational economic distress. And that creates the situations, the conditions that are right, the stressors on families, the stressors on parents that make it hard to be nurturing and supportive in the way that we all want to be for our kids, that makes it more likely for adverse childhood experiences to occur. So if you're working in a community like that, yeah. where, where families are not just bringing to you an ear infection mm -hmm. or colds, right, but they are also bringing to you and they're encumbered by the stresses of their lives that have been passed down from generation to generation, you're not going to you're not going to be able to work with those families to help them to address the root causes of their health outcomes in 15 minutes. And so it requires a rethinking of how we how we serve, particularly those populations, but it, medicine in general. Yeah. Um, thank you, Dr. Wade. And, and, you know, you just made me think of the social determinants of health and also the next book in this category is the social determinants of mental health, both very important to this conversation. So uh, I appreciate it. The other thing I wanted to say as I go to Dr. Owen, what you just shared with our audience is how you care 
and we have a saying that we it's not ours, but we we use it. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And what you demonstrated is how much you care. So to your colleagues that give you grief, yeah, we get it. But just uh, keep doing what you do. And Dr. Owen, I'm going to come to you now and ask you about some work that uh, that you're doing and you've done with youth in the juvenile justice system. And um, Dr. Wade, you've done extensive work in urban Philadelphia, as you just mentioned. You both practicing pediatricians as well as researchers who've performed a lot of research around the intersection of childhood poverty, adversity, and well-being. And of course, you also are both people of color yourself, uh, who I imagine have had your own experiences with racism and adversity throughout your life. Can you share some examples of concrete ways you have seen racism negatively impact individuals' physical and mental health, either personally or in your own life, or with patients in your practice or through research? Uh, any of those three? Sure. So working in, in a youth detention facility and, and having worked not just in a detention facility in California, but also working in youth legal reform in Florida and nationally, you see it really every day. And so I talk a little bit about uh, the youth legal system. And so with the youth legal system, there's various decision points that occur throughout the system by various actors. So an example of some of those decision points is a youth may commit a criminal or delinquent act, and there could be a decision whether or not to arrest them or maybe give them a a ticket or a warning or release them home. Once they're arrested, there's a decision whether or not they should be held in a detention facility until they uh, can go to court. Once they're in court, there's a decision whether they should continue to be held in a detention facility or if they can go home. And then once the legal process plays out, there is a decision about their adjudication. So how long should they stay in a detention facility or if they should go to adult court? And when we look at the youth legal system and we look at studies that have been done in the youth legal system, studies show that at virtually every decision point, every time a decision is made by various actors throughout the system, that there is a disadvantageous impact of, on a, of being a person of color in the system. So that people of color in that system are much more likely to have a negative decision regarding their disposition in the youth legal system or the adult legal system. And we see it all the time. You know, the, the, the data shows really clearly that youth detention facilities all around the country are really filled with black and brown kids at a higher, very disproportionate rate compared to white children, especially And that kids of color are more likely to be placed into the adult criminal system and to be given uh, longer sentences as well. And that's just shown really across the entire country. And that really is the result of structural and interpersonal racism across many systems. Right. And so I think that, of course, there is implicit and explicit bias that exists within the youth legal system that drives many of those disparities. Um, But I think as Roy was mentioning earlier, that that's not just the impact of the youth legal system, that there are a lot of other structural factors that are really grounded in structural and interpersonal racism that also color that. So children of color are more likely to live in communities that maybe are being over-policed. They're more likely to be getting um, suspended or expelled from school. They're more likely to live in communities that have been economically marginalized or disadvantaged. So just working in the youth legal system, uh, both locally and nationally and, and in different states, you see the pervasive impact of racism and how it really impacts and shapes the lives of these kids 
really every single day. It's really impossible to not see it, I think, when you're working in the system on a daily basis. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, uh, Dr. Owen. Dr. Wade? The only That was just well said, Dr. Owen. I couldn't have said it any better myself. Um, one of the big points I wanted to bring out about what Dr. Owen said is that he really never highlighted a distinct experience, right, that you can say, for sure, somebody used the N-word or someone, you know, said, because you are black or brown, you deserve this. And that's the problem. I, I can recall growing up, I was a college student, actually, at Georgia Tech. I was walking from a basketball game with some of my friends, and they were my white friends who I had been working with in a lab. And we were, had all enjoyed the game, and we were walking away. And somehow, it was a large crowd, and I got separated from my friends, and I was walking by myself. And a white police officer pulled her car up alongside and said, hey, you, you, I got you. And pulled me over in the middle of midst of a crowd and frisked me and searched me and asked for my identification. And then when she realized I wasn't the person she was looking for, just handed me back my license and walked away. And I can remember that feeling of embarrassment and shame and, 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 and incapacitation. And I had buried it inside of myself for a very long time, hadn't even mentioned it to my colleagues until I was in a clinic visit one time with a 15-year-old boy who described the same experience and that same sense of loss of self-efficacy and loss of control. And you can't even make the argument, well, was it because of my color? You know implicitly that it was, right? But it's incapacitating, right? Because you can't even convince other people who haven't had that same experience that you were racially discriminated against. And I see so many of my young people who have had these experiences and they have, not only do they have that sense of loss of control, but a, a distrust of systems. And so when you think about the fact that you then have to go and engage in an educational system or even a healthcare system with persons who look just like that, who, may, who you think may be having those same thoughts about you, um, how hard it's going to be to trust those systems and to stay engaged with those systems if, um, if you've had these experiences and they've gone unaddressed. I want to take it on another level, though, um, and think about this, that the experience of racial discrimination is intergenerational, right? And that mm. you have had, you know, I've had my own experiences of racial discrimination growing up. My father had his own direct experiences. Right. And then my grandfather, who was a sharecropper, um, certainly had many harsh experiences of outright racial trauma. Well, here's what we know about adverse childhood experiences is that, that there are social pathways through mm -hmm. which the, the effect of adverse childhood experiences impact offspring. Mm -hmm. Meaning that if you were abused or neglected growing up, that your kids can actually have negative health outcomes just as a result of those traumatic experiences that you have. Because you may have been abused or neglected, it may affect the way you parent. It may make it so that you uh, don't uh, parent in as supportive way as you could. That may, you may be harsher. It may not be abusive, but you may be harsher as a parent. Um, and that can lead to negative outcomes for your kids. At the same time, research has found that there are changes in the way that certain genes, specifically genes that govern your stress response system, get regulated or controlled and produced. This is called epigenetics, and they are sensitive to the experience of adversity, meaning that something about the experience of adversity changes, 
so that it alters these genes in your stress pathway and makes it more likely that they get either overproduced um, in response. And that in and of itself can affect your health. And those changes can be transmitted to your offspring. Well, think about racism, right? And if you think about the experiences of my grandfather growing up as a child, I'm sure he had some traumatic experiences and how those might have shaped his, the way he parented, but also the epigenetic pathways that control his stress response system and how those experiences can get transmitted to my father and how they might be transmitted to me and affecting me and my health, irrespective of the traumatic experiences that I've had growing up. And so what I'm calling, what I'm trying to demonstrate is that even if you have not had direct experiences of racial trauma, if you are a person of color in this country, you certainly have had ancestors who've had. Mm. And, and those experiences can be impacting um, the way they took care of you. And even on the molecular level, on the biological level, they can change the way your stress response system genes get activated, right? That, and then lead to poor health outcomes for you as well in the aggregate. You know, this is, uh, this is profound. And thank you very much for um, sharing that experience with us, as well as talking about multi-generational and the, um, how our genes get regulated and, and how it can be passed down from generation to generation. Um, so, you know, thank you uh, very much. This is very revealing from the standpoint of the science and it's, it's so easy for people not to understand the science. And this is such an important conversation. So I just want to say thank you. And there is a clear correlation between adverse childhood experiences, racism, toxic stress, and long-term health effects. But if you've experienced any of this, you are not doomed, uh, right? I mean, there are ways people can actually reverse the effects of adverse childhood experiences through strategies that some people call stress busters. Can you tell our listeners about that? And it may be called something other than stress busters, but what are some of the ways that uh, people can actually reverse the effects of adverse childhood experiences? And I don't know, I use that word reverse very casually, but I don't know whether the word reverse is the right word. You guys would, would be able to tell me if that's inaccurate. So thank you very much. And whoever wants to start, I would really love to hear any counsel, advice that you can share with us about reversing the effects of adverse childhood experiences. So this is actually my favorite part of all these conversations. I, I am fortunate enough to have been asked to give talks across the country about adverse childhood experiences, toxic stress. And oftentimes, two thirds of my talk is focused on how bad ACEs are and how the, the life course affects the ACEs. And I have to do a, a suicide check at, you know, halfway through the talk because I'm, I'm concerned I depress some people so overwhelmingly. It's at this point in the talk where I change and I talk about just what you said, that this is not written in stone. There are plenty of people who we know who have had difficult, challenging traumatic experiences growing up as a child who going on to be healthy, successful people, despite those experiences. And what I highlight is that, you know, maybe reverse is not the word. It's, it's more about being resilient mm. and overcoming. I think these experiences stick with you irregardless. It's about how you navigate them and, and manage them. But when you go and sit down with the person who, who says that they've had four or five or six of these experiences growing up and they're successful and they're maintaining healthy connections and they're parenting well and they're living healthy lives. And you ask them, what made the difference for you growing up? How did you overcome these experiences? You know, they all say the same thing. A caring adult. 
And the evidence supports that, right? Having a consistent, caring adult in the life of a child who has experienced trauma helps to mitigate the experience of adverse childhood experiences. Now, the powerful piece of that is that I didn't say parent. And I'm not trying to usurp or overwhelm the role of a parent in the, in the life of a child. We all know the primacy of that, or the primacy of the role of parents. But that statement in and of itself is encouraging to me. Because what it says to me is that anybody who wants to be consistent and caring in the life of a child who has experienced trauma can make the difference. It can be a coach. It can be a pediatrician. It can be clergy. It can be a police officer. Anybody who wants to be consistent and caring and nurturing, right? But do you want to know what the real challenge is? The challenge is actually not that, right? The challenge is that we just don't have enough of those people. I'll give you an example to highlight that point. When I came to Philadelphia in 2011, I was interested in doing adverse childhood experiences, and I was interested in researching in this area, but I was interested in how in the confluence of poverty and adversity. And I was interested in this idea of expanding the concept of what an adverse childhood experience is, moving from this focus on household to what happens in the community as well. And so I conducted a series of focus groups with young adults, so not kids, but individuals between the ages of 18 and 26 years of age, mm. who had grown up in Philadelphia and who had grown up in primarily economically distressed communities. And these focus groups that I held were solely about understanding what adverse childhood experiences they had growing up and the language that they used to describe them. Now, I partner with various boys and girls clubs and YMCAs and other community-based organizations throughout Philadelphia to conduct this. And for one focus group, I went down to South Philadelphia and I held um, a focus group with young adults who were associated with the Boys and Girls Club that was actually associated with a public housing complex. And I met the manager of that public housing complex and he actually gave me a tour of the Boys and Girls Club. It was packed with young people all having fun, um, enjoying themselves. But I didn't see very many adults. I saw three supervising adults. And the director of the facility took me into his office. And I wish I could show you guys. He, he, he had a binder that was so thick. And it was just filled with pages. And he opened up the binder. And there was just name after name after name running down, sheet after sheet after sheet. And what he told me was, he said, you know what this list is? I said, I don't know. What is that list? He said, that's the number of kids from the public housing complex across the street who are on a wait list to get in this facility. Wow. So when you think about it, right? Yeah. What I just told you is that essentially things like YMCAs, boys and girls clubs, youth mentoring programs are evidence-based. There are pro, there, there's research showing the importance of having a consistent and caring adult in your life and mitigating the impact of trauma on you. So these are evidence-based programs, things like Big Brothers and Big Sisters. The list goes on and on. But when it comes to funding for the things that we already know work, our society hasn't committed the money necessary just to do the basic things like that, but just to make sure that kids who are more likely to experience trauma because they live in poverty, have access to consistent and caring adults. 
You know, thank you, Dr. Wade. And as you shared that, you know, um, it took me back growing up in Washington, D.C. and over in uh, far northeast. And I was one of those kids. I played football for the Boys and Girls Club. I, I went to the YMCA. So and I can remember as you brought this up and I'm almost 70. I, I now remember, as you said, uh, a few consistent and caring adults that were a part of my experience then. So, you know, I appreciate what you just shared. And also how you talked about that binder and that list of other young people that wanted to get there because they know that that could be of value to their development and their association. Uh, and NAMI, we say we're a community, a collective, a collaborator, and a convener. Building on that, partnering with different organizations that also are conveners and do this. This is very important. So thank you for that, Dr. Wade. Dr. Owen, what would you say about things that will make you more resilient and have you navigate those adverse childhood experiences? I think I'll move away from reverse because I don't know that you can absolutely reverse. I mean, once you've experienced it, you've experienced it. So I don't know that reverse is the right term. I'll take that out of my, my nomenclature going forward. But I would say, you know, now that you've experienced it, what, what are some of the the, the tools that you've seen and the ways that someone can, you know, actually have a different outcome in the stress busters. Right. So first I'll say I agree with everything uh, Dr. Wade said. And um, I think the points that that he made are really well taken. And Dan, as you mentioned earlier, adverse childhood experiences are associated with a number of poor health and well-being outcomes. And I think a really important point to make here is that at least in part, the impact of ACEs is really mediated through the toxic stress response so that there is this disordered stress physiology that is really translating the impact of ACEs into poor health outcomes in childhood and into adulthood. And I've seen this many times in my clinical practice in, in juvenile hall and in community-based health centers where I might have a, an adolescent who comes in who's had experienced a lot of ACEs and has many medical conditions. For example, they may have asthma, they may have obesity, may have ADHD, may have uh, behavioral health problems. And typically in, in, in primary care settings, what, what often happens is, okay, you have asthma, maybe we'll give you a rescue inhaler and an inhaled steroid. Uh, you have ADHD, maybe we'll surprise a stimulant. Um, if you have other medical condition, there's other medical interventions that we're using uh, to treat uh, the symptoms that you have. Um, but a different approach is understanding that a cause of many of these medical conditions is really this underlying disordered stress, disordered stress physiology. And when we talk about stress busters, the stress busters are really evidence-based strategies to mitigate the toxic stress response. So things like quality sleep, balanced nutrition, increased physical activity, mindfulness, experiencing nature, access to mental health, and as, as Dr. Wade was saying, uh, supportive buffering relationships to help uh, clinicians, to help uh, clinical teams, community-based organizations, different social service medical providers understand that there is a toxic stress physiology here. And to work with patients, to work with families, to work with communities, to learn how we can take these strategies, these interventions that have really been shown to positively impact the stress response system, and how can we implement them in our patients' and families' lives. And so what does that look like in a clinical setting for me? Uh, it may be looking at the adolescent that we talked about earlier that has a lot of these medical conditions, but understanding that the root cause of them is this exposure to adversity and the subsequent toxic stress physiology. And so first, 
uh, is educating uh, adolescents, educating patients, educating families about the impact of adversity and toxic stress. And I'd say that in and of itself for me is oftentimes a big aha moment for the patients that I take care of. Again, I work in in carceral settings. I have work with kids who have significant mental health, behavioral health uh, challenges throughout their life. And oftentimes in the kids that I take care of, there's often a a sense of frustration, uh, a sense of guilt, uh, just a sadness, you know, feeling overwhelmed by their life, really not wanting to be this way and not understanding, even though they want to do better, not understanding how they can overcome some of the challenges they have, not understanding why they're so reactive, why they're so angry. And I think one, educating these adolescents and these young adults about the science behind it, to understand that the experiences that they've had in their life have, has really led to this toxic stress physiology, which has then in turn impacted their brain architecture, impacted their stress response system. It, it really has provided some comfort to the patients that I take care of to understand that, hey, this isn't my fault, but not only is it not my fault, but there's things that I can work on and things that we can do to help treat it and help to get better. So when I'm thinking about the stress busters and and when we're talking about the importance of the stress busters, again, it's about helping people make the connection um, Mm. that some of their health problems may be rooted in this toxic stress physiology and helping them to learn how they can implement some of these new strategies to treat that toxic stress physiology which can then lead to better health outcomes. And I think that's really important too, because it's not just for kids. Um, It is incredibly important for kids, adolescents, and young adults. Um, But it's also important for older adults who may have uh, experienced adversities in childhood and may be experiencing the consequences of toxic stress now to help them learn that there's also evidence-based strategies um, that they can implement into their daily life uh, to help treat the toxic stress physiology and improve their health outcomes as well. Yeah, thank you. Dan, can I follow up if on you that? Would. Can't, again, Dr. Owen is, is spot on. Um, and um, much of this work around uh, adverse childhood experiences and addressing toxic stress and mitigating the impact of toxic stress <clears throat> is skill building, right? It's about helping, it's about recognizing that impact of adversity and toxic stress on your executive functioning skills and your coping skills. And it's about recognizing that our adolescents who have had these experiences, if they haven't talked with them, with someone, they can internalize them and develop guilt and self-blame. And then they haven't made that connection that maybe this behaviors that I'm having or even my medical condition and how bad my medical condition has gotten. Maybe, you know, you didn't get your ACEs from, you didn't get your asthma from ACEs, right? But we know the ACEs makes, or toxic stress makes the management of it and the symptomatology of it even worse. But again, I think in healthcare, we have this battlefield mentality in that we're on the battlefield and we're in the middle of a battle and we're, you know, we're the medic and someone has a wound and we patch up the wound and we send them back out into the battle and we don't address the battle. Right. And so it's hard for for folks to have that, to make those connections. Right. And it's hard for parents to be nurturing and supportive, even once they made that connection if they're still being bombarded by the constant stress of racial discrimination or of living in poverty or some of the other issues, violence within their community that they have to address. And so I think our approach to addressing adversity and toxic stress has to be a two-pronged approach. Mm. Um, It has one to be skill building and the work that we do on an individual one-on-one level with patients like Dr. Owen described. But at the same time, it has to be 
and I hate to say it again, I'm going to sound like a, a broken record, but it's addressing the systems and the, and the way that systems create pressures on families and communities that then make it hard to be nurturing and supportive and to address some of the, 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 the ramifications of experiencing toxic stress. Yeah, thank you. Um, the skill building and addressing the symptoms and then some of the interventions that you talked about, Dr. Owen, sleep, exercise, getting out in nature and, and for our community that I don't know about the nature piece in terms of our community. So, uh, but there were several that you offered up as well. So thank you for that. Um, and I, I was also thinking about that parent that you might have, Dr. Wade, that comes to see you or that parent, Dr. Owen, that you're interacting with, that all of a sudden their child is experiencing something that the parent experienced when they were growing up that they buried. I don't know if you've experienced that, but the child starts talking and all of a sudden the parent realizes that same thing happened to me. That same experience happened to me. And I don't know if you want to speak to that, but I welcome any any, if, if you've seen it, heard it, or experienced it. So then I can tell you a wonderful story that illustrates just that. So going back again to those focus groups that I had, one of those focus groups I had was with two African-American women. Mm -hmm. And I had organized this focus group a week ahead and I showed up and I was expecting 10 people to be there. And anybody who knows qualitative research knows that you want at least, you know, five or six people there. If you have just a couple people there, then the discussion is not going to be as rich. But we had committed this time and I was, you know, I didn't want to waste the, the young lady's time. And so we decided to move ahead. And what made it even more challenging was that they had brought their, their children with them. They had young kids. And so I fortunately had a research assistant who was able to watch their children while we held our focus group. And the way our focus groups worked was that I would have the folks come and sort of just list, like, I'll just yell out all the traumatic and stressful things that they either had growing up, had experienced growing up, or they saw other people in their neighborhood experience. And you can imagine with a group of 10 people, you know, I had a flip chart and I would just write up these experiences. I would fill up four or five sheets easily. But with these two women, I filled up four, five, six sheets full of experiences. Yeah. And a lot of the experiences they described were the sense of feeling not enough as a young lady growing up in their community. And here's why. Because as they looked at their relationships with their moms, what happened was, unfortunately, many of the young men in their community were either incarcerated or have been locked up. And so their moms are missing that connection to them. And the few men that were left in their community could do no wrong, while these two young women could do no right. So for, so for the same things that their, their, their male cousins and brothers might experience um, and get off with or might do and get off with, they would be punished severely for. And so at the end of the focus group, these young ladies were very astute and they pressed me. They said, well, why are you doing this? Why are you going around asking people about all these bad things that happen? Like, what's wrong with you? Right. And so we had finished the focus group and I said, all right, well, let, let's go. And so we talked about adverse childhood experiences and toxic stress and, and how they impact health outcomes um, and how they can even impact the way you care for your child, mm -hmm. right? And how your child can actually be impacted by these experiences. And then I was done, right? But on their own, the two young ladies, they started to count up their mom's A score. And they said, well, my mom, this happened to my mom. And this happened to my mom. And I can remember this happening to my mom. And then they started to think about like, 
how that might have affected the way their mom parented them. But here is the more powerful thing. It just gives me excitement to think about because what it says is that the answers are right in the community. We just have to give people space to be able to think them through. Mm -hmm. These two young ladies started to count up their own A score. And they started to think about how their A score was affecting the way they parented those two little kids across the room. And they looked at their kids and they started to say, ah, this is why I might do that when they do this. And this is what I could do differently, right? They started to identify and recognize their own triggers. Now, I'm not even trained in this, but all I did was create the space, right, to have the conversation that's in a protected area where they're not being bombarded by stressors. And on their own, these two young ladies came up with what I consider to be evidence-informed, at least, approaches to addressing their own experience of toxic stress and being more nurturing and supportive for their kids growing up. That's a powerful story and a great example. Um, Really do appreciate you sharing that. And I, I know our audience will as well. There are, of course, ways people can manage stress on a micro level. But at the same time, there are systematic changes that also must be addressed. We have to manage the root cause of these issues, not just the symptoms. And we talked about that earlier. From a policy perspective and a systematic change perspective, What can we do to address adverse childhood experiences and racism? We can't all move to California. uh, So how do we how do we take how how, how do we look at this from a, you know, from a policy standpoint? And what can advocates do on a community level? What can policymakers do and what can doctors and and practitioners and caregivers do? I I think we've been talking about that, but wanted to make sure I put that question out front. So I think it's a really incredible question. And again, I think that I'm really proud of the work that that California is doing to think about this uh, comprehensively and structurally. And, you know, I don't want to paint too much of a rosy picture because, of course, California is far from perfect and there is a lot more work that needs to be done. Um, But I think that one of the really important things is that we've recognized that there's no single sector or category of prevention that by itself is sufficient that there's going to need to be a really comprehensive and a really coordinated uh, approach across many, many different sectors uh, to be able to not only address the impacts of childhood adversity and toxic stress, but to address the historical and ongoing impacts of generations and generations of structural racism uh, and discrimination. And I think that in in doing this work and, and, and a lot of advocacy work and trying to think about trauma-informed, developmentally appropriate juvenile justice systems, for example. I think it's really important for us to remember that it took a really long time um, to get to where we are today and that we're not going to flick a switch and, 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 and achieve all the progress that we want um, and have all the outcomes that we want. So for me, staying motivated and continuing in the fight and, and understanding that this takes time um, and is going to take investment in, in a lot of different sectors and a lot of different different categories. And just a couple in California, we've talked about the ACEs Aware initiative that I'm really uh, proud to be a a part of now. But also we have the Children's and Youth Behavioral Health Initiative, which is a $4 billion investment in California and transforming our youth behavioral health system. We have the California Advancing and Innovating um, Medi-Cal Initiative, which is looking at really how can we transform our Medi-Cal system to be one um, that really promotes health equity. So I think in in, in thinking about, about the systems and, and the structural approach is just so critically important 
to think about how to coordinate across sectors and how to bring sectors together uh, to address some of these uh, uh, root causes and that to focus on prevention, but also that while we're focusing on primary prevention, um, that also thinking about uh, individuals and communities um, that have been historically most impacted, uh, who are most impacted now, and making sure that we're giving special attention and, and the resources necessary uh, to really address those who have been most impacted and are most impacted today. Very good. Thank you very much. Um, uh, Dr. Wade? I, again, I, I can't agree more with Dr. Owen. I think it's, it's in part about systems, right? And how do we get systems to work together to address these issues? As Dr. Owen said, these issues have been years in the making. And I think in healthcare, we're starting to see that. The innovations that we create, or that we develop on the individual level are, are making that small changes. And we've gotten to the point where we've, we've fixed every other problem that we can fix. And now it, it comes to the social problem, that if we really want to move the needle and really want to improve the health and well-being of, of, of children and of families, um, that we have to start with addressing these more intransigent issues around inequity and poverty and racial discrimination. That's the hard work because it requires more sacrifice. It requires more giving up. There's this pie, right? Pie of equity, right? Mm -hmm. uh, in our country. And, you know, some people are going to have to take a little bit less of that pie so somebody else can have a little bit of the pie too. But in the end, it will benefit us all. To get it back to the conversation on racial discrimination, on the individual level, I think that there are some things that we can do. A lot of people talk with me about ending racial discrimination and about creating a, a system that's more in, inclusive and, and, and caring. And, 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 they, and they laugh at me and they say, well, Roy, you, you want to create a law that legislates love? Um, I say, well, you probably can't legislate love, but you can certainly punish hate, right? Mm. And so we need to do a better job of enforcing the laws right, on our books, right? And where we're seeing police discrimination um, and other forms of discrimination, we, our kids are looking at that. They're watching that. And that's their barometer. We tell them that we're a post-racial um, country, which we're not. We tell them that, um, they're, you know, that we're egalitarian and everyone has an equal chance and opportunity. Um, but when they see us not punishing people who have um, discriminated, who have um, wrongfully taken from persons of color, that's their message, right? That, 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 that the world's not fair. And that then again, reinforces that sense of feeling incapacitated. And so uh, what we can do on an individual level is be more consistent, right? In our addressing these, um, these issues around racial discrimination and working to make sure that um, those people who are, are guilty of these crimes are, are punished appropriately for them. Yeah, thank you, Doc. Um, and as we wrap up, we always uh, wrap up with a section that we call Hold On to Hope. And we know the world can be a difficult place and sometimes it can be hard to hold on to hope. Dr. Owen and Dr. Wade, can you tell us what helps you hold on to hope? I think for me, what inspires me uh, and what helps me maintain hope, it, it really is young people. Um, I think having the privilege of, of caring for, for kids that, that are involved in the legal system and hearing their stories, hearing the things that they've been through, the really unspeakable uh, traumas um, are almost an everyday common occurrence in what we hear. And the fact, I think one, that they haven't given up hope 
experiencing and, and hearing their stories and, and their resilience for me is is really inspiring uh, and really wants me helps to make me want to do more. And then on a related note with, with young people, I'm just really inspired by the advocacy and system change work that's really being led by young people. And when we think about uh, reforms to the youth legal system and the way that young people have been really forceful in, in raising their voice about what changes are needed and what expectations they have of it, or what other issues like climate change and how young people have taken the lead in you know, suing governments uh, to advocate uh, to stop climate change. And so just for me, uh, working with young people and seeing how they're so rooted and grounded um, in equity uh, and the work that they're doing is really inspirational um, and just constantly motivates me um, to not only want to stay in the fight, but to want to do more uh, and, and, and partner with them, um, to collaborate with them, to help empower with them and stand not, not in front of them, but aside them uh, as we do this work in pursuing equity. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Owen. Uh, Dr. Wade? Um, well, a lot of different things. Um, uh, as I said before, I, you know, I, I had the opportunity uh, and the great fortune of being, you know, asked to travel around the country, right, to talk about this work. And I'm often doing that within the context of a conference or an initiative that, that folks are starting, similar to the ACES Aware initiative um, in, their, in their state, or in their city or in their in their county. Um, and it's always inspiring to see people gathered together, energetic, um, and some of the most difficult circumstances where there's limited resources and limited funding and, and even opposition to the things that they want to do, but still how 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 focused and um, determined they are they are to 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 to, to do it. Um, and so that's inspiring to me. And similar to Dr. Owen, um, my, my patients um, um, and, and you know all the challenges that they they, they go through um, and how resilient they are and there's this conversation around grit right that 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 we need to make young folks have more grit um, uh, in order to help them to be more successful uh, and a lot of times you know either in in, in, in nuanced words we're, we're talking about uh, kids of color right um, and I push back and I say my, my patients have plenty of grit. If you have a 15, 16 year old kid who had to come on their own uh, to a well child visit and shows up to that well child visit, I mean, I, I don't want to paint a too bleak a picture, but some of my kids, they, 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 they have to tiptoe around crack files and needles coming out of their house. Right? They, they, they walk down the street and they're accosted by drug dealers and pimps. Um, and they have to avoid certain sections of their neighborhood because if they walk down those streets, um, they're liable to be shot or stabbed or beaten up. Um, yet they still show up to my well-child visit. Um, so when you take a 15-year-old, 16-year-old, 17-year-old who has to go through that, and they still show up to see me, that kid has more grip, grit in their pinky finger than I have in my entire body. And so mm -hmm. the fact that they show up um, it, it, it inspires me, especially with all the things that they're going through. And then, you know, um, it, it leads us to the point of, um, you know, there's these times in, in, in our history, right, where um, they represent inflection points, 
um, particularly in, in the United States, where we've sort of been moving towards creating this more democratic and equitable country. Um, and you can see it, right, uh, particularly as it relates to race and the Civil War, right, and civil rights. And I believe, I honestly believe that this is not hyperbole, that we are at an inflection point. Um, and I believe that we are part of a movement that has really gotten and is getting to the root cause of inequity and poor outcomes. And we are soldiers in that fight. And I believe that we are on the winning side. We are on the good side. We are on the just side. And so when you realize or you feel that you are part of that movement, um, how can you not be inspired? How can you give up? Yes, you will have low points. Yes, you will have times where you feel like the struggle is too much and you feel encumbered and during those times you need to take a rest. But, um, you know, when you fall down, uh, when you are weary, when you feel weak, rest, but then get up, dust, off, dust yourself off and be inspired and move forward again. Dr. Wade, Dr. Owen, thank you. Thank you very much. This has been Hope Starts With Us, a podcast by NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. If you are looking for mental health resources, you are not alone. To connect with NAMI with the NAMI helpline and find local resources, visit nami.org forward slash help. Text helpline to 62640 or dial 800-950-6264 or NAMI. To learn more about California's ACES Aware Initiative, visit acesaware.org. To learn more about the intersection of culture, race, and identity with mental health, visit nami.org forward slash culture. If you are experiencing an immediate suicide, substance use, or mental health crisis, please call or text 988 to speak with a trained support specialist or visit 988lifeline.org. Thank you for listening and be well.